Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings 13, and the last time we saw King Rehoboam, his brash and really crude attitude towards his subjects causes a split in Israel, and Jeroboam now becomes the king of the north, and Rehoboam becomes the king of the south. Uh, this evening we're going to look at an account of a younger prophet, an older prophet, and lessons learned. I just want to warn you up front, if you're a new believer or you haven't been in the faith that long, I expect you to ask questions after service. This is one of those difficult passages to get through. Um, a lot really has to be explained, and um, you know, there had to be a bunch of things going on at the time. So I'll read it, and when we get towards the end, you'll probably definitely have some questions. Starting with verse 1. It says, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. This is King Jeroboam. Then he cried out against the altar, the man of God, by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, will be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as before. So King Jeroboam of the north becomes an idolater. Uh, God, God gave him this position and he totally spits in God's face, for lack of a better term. Uh, it does kind of look like he's getting away with it in this chapter, but we'll see. In next chapter, he pays a heavy price for it. And God gives him many warnings. So he sets up these altars outside of Jerusalem, which he's not supposed to do. Um, there was the worship of false gods in, in the northern kingdom. Idolatry was becoming rampant. And God sends this young prophet to rebuke the situation. And if you'll notice, the prophet doesn't even address Jeroboam the king. The king is so out there, that God doesn't necessarily address him personally, but Jeroboam speaks to the altar and cries out against the sin of idolatry, and he speaks about punishment, which would be fulfilled by King Josiah many years later, Second Kings 23, one of the reasons I named my son Josiah, uh, deep into the Old Testament, but he was an awesome man of God, a man of reform, a man of repentance, and um, we'll see that as we continue a few hundred years down into Israel's history. So Jeroboam also, he was burning incense, so he was acting as a priest as well as a king, and you can't do that. Um, later on, Uzziah did the same thing, and God had enough of the double practice. And in 2 Chronicles 26, Uzziah ends up breaking out in leprosy because he's so filled with pride. You know, these guys, they, 
being a king wasn't enough. They needed to take on another role. And God really had a separation of power, so to speak. So one person wouldn't become too powerful and too puffed up with pride. But some of them just couldn't resist it. Now, two miracles take place here. Number one, the altar splits open and all the ashes come out, which is pretty phenomenal as they were made of stone and they were pretty sturdy. So God splits it. The ashes come pouring out. Number two, King Jeroboam's hand withers. It becomes deformed. Uh, God strikes him with something to cause some type of affliction. And then the king, okay, who's afflicted now, begs the man of God, the prophet, to heal him, and God obliges. God is merciful, but Jeroboam doesn't learn his lesson, and he continues in his sin, and we'll see that in the next chapter. And, you know, this is our God. He shows mercy. He warns. He convicts. And his desire is for us to repent when we're going the wrong way. And he's a merciful God because he gives us many chances. Unfortunately for Jeroboam, he just was very stubborn and hard-hearted. Some, especially in positions of power, may take them a longer time because they get so deceived by their own propaganda and their own aggrandizement that they don't, you know, they don't, the pride just blinds them. And pride is a terrible sin that God hates. Uh, and, And even, you know, you see these two miracles that take place and even that doesn't bring the conviction that leads to repentance. I mean, they're good miracles, they're good signs, but Jeroboam is a really, he's a really tough character here. Verse 7. So it says, Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me, by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. This is powerful. God gives the prophet, the man of God, instructions not to eat with anybody there, especially not Jeroboam, because Jeroboam was not a faithful believer. He was not a man of faith. He was still continuing in his sin. And I got to tell you, if you haven't read it, 1 Corinthians 5 is a great parallel scripture for the New Testament, right? It's, it's actually an amazing uh, chapter that I think a lot of Christians haven't really let that sink in because uh, he basically says to the Apostle Paul, if I'm going to separate myself from anybody, it isn't going to be the world, pagans, unbelievers. You know, he goes, I have to leave the world, to, and I'm paraphrasing, to get away from them. He says, but I will separate myself from somebody who calls themselves a Christian and is a, a reviler, an idolater, you know, somebody who's a gossip. And today, like, I think there's some passages of Scripture Christians don't, they just don't even want to understand what it says because of the implications. Now, I've found that, that gossips have the biggest following. They should have the smallest following. Troublemakers and gossips, you know, they're, they're fleshly, carnally interesting to be around. And people follow around them, but according to this, it should be the opposite. You know, we should separate ourselves from those who are doing a list of these things and calling themselves a Christian. You know, ministry, I I can only tell you, can be and should be a lonely place sometimes. You know, we're not going to be liked by everyone. And this man of God was not to be infected by the sins of this idolatrous region. They were calling themselves believers, but they were anything but. You know, if we're doing the right thing as as believers today, um, people will know that we love them, but they'll also know that we stand for the hard truth. 
And if we're really doing the right thing, sometimes we will irritate those in the Christian community because they want to live a carnal lifestyle and we just, we don't want to. So, you know, yeah, it's not always, things are not always what they seem. Verse 11. It says, Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. There's this curiosity that the old man has, the old prophet for this young prophet. Now it says he's a man of God, but he speaks for God. So I'm using man of God and prophet, the young guy, interchangeably. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. So far, so good. For I've been told by the word of the Lord, You shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way you came. So the young prophet initially does good, but he lingers in Bethel. Or he lingers. He doesn't fully make his way back to Judah, and that's a problem. You know, sometimes we can linger in our hearts. And we can linger in places we don't belong. We can linger on the computer too long. We can linger in social groups too long. We can linger when some are talking, and we're lingering and we're listening. And we know it's wrong. We're convicted by the Holy Spirit, but we linger. And this is where the man went wrong. And, and the rest of the story is actually tragic. Verse 18. He said to him, now this is the older prophet, I too am a prophet as you are, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. You know, if Satan can't destroy us by attacking us, he will kill us with kindness. He will flatter us. He will lie to us. He will... It's, it's interesting. I'm in um, uh, uh, Daniel 6 with Darius, the king, and Daniel, and, the, and the, all his leaders say, oh, king, for 30 days, no one shall worship any god but you. Hey, that sounds like a great idea. They couldn't get Daniel any other way, and they knew Daniel wouldn't worship a man. So they make the king make this law, this decree, and that's how they trap Daniel and throw him into the lion's den. But again, if Satan can't destroy us by attacking us, he'll do it by killing us with kindness, flattery, things that we want to hear. If you had strong instructions from the Lord, could anybody convince you to do the opposite? Well, that's what happened to this young, powerful man of God. This is where the story takes a turn for the worse. I mean, even Galatians 1.8, Apostle Paul says, if we or an angel of heaven preach any other gospel than it's already been preached to you, let him be accursed. He says it twice. He repeats it in verse 9. Whenever the Bible repeats something, it's something to pay attention to. And here, again, he lied to him, but this young man thinks that, well, this angel told him, so maybe I should change my plan. I mean, God is, is omniscient. God is... He has foreknowledge. Can, if he establishes something, 
could he ever say, gee, I was wrong. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak that, that rule. You know, people do that today, but that's not what God does. And this young guy succumbs to it. We wonder why the man of God, the young man, was so easily persuaded. Um, actually, people will say weird things to you. They'll, they'll, you know, if you're being discipled by somebody and you really trust them and they get a word of the Lord, and, and I don't think it happens every day. Sometimes there's an exaggeration. But you'll listen because you've submitted yourself to somebody who's been tested. However, there are some that say weird stuff. I remember listening to Chuck Smith. I forget what he, part of the Bible he was teaching. And he said a woman <laughs> came up to him and said, now he was married, Chuck Smith, that this woman was going to be his wife. Whoa, ouch, that's weird. That's creepy. Obviously, it didn't come to pass. You know, um, sometimes a person just needs to be rebuked. Other times you can politely say, that's great that he revealed his will for my life to you, so I will do it when he reveals it to me. You know what I'm saying? I'm just waiting for the message, and then I'm, I'm going to be off and running. So uh, that's what you have. But understand this as well. What's the big deal? Eating bread, having a drink of water. In those days, if you ate a meal, it's really not like today. Today, we you know, even go to you know, Amish country or Pennsylvania, and you eat with like five other families. It doesn't mean much. But back in those days, when you broke bread with somebody, when you sat at their table, you were endorsing them, you were fellowshipping with them. And when we understand that, we understand why the Lord's Supper was so powerful. It isn't just, well, we were handing out juice and a, and a cracker. No, there's a lot more to it. And when we understand that the disciples and Jesus eating together, you know, he was, he was forming them. He was the bread of life that they had to feed off of in a spiritual sense. So God did not want him eating with anybody in that area. They were corrupted. And it, it would cause compromise. And I would say this too, anyone in ministry or a pastor who operates as they want to be liked all the time, if that's their MO, they're compromising somewhere. Careful of that. Verse 20. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back to the older prophet, right? And he cried out to the man of God, the young guy, who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and you have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. That means you're not going to make it back to be buried nicely. Um, you're going to die. That's scary. You know, this story is, is, is just bizarre in a lot of ways because you see the transition with this old prophet and how he, he changes. And he, it's just, a, I'm going to wrap it up in the end. It's very unusual. But I just would say that today, for some, the desire is just to take a man of God or someone in ministry out of ministry. You know, there are some that it's so weird, even in the church, it's such a carnality that it's almost a challenge to take somebody off that pedestal and then just walk away to, to, when, they, when they ruin the church or ruin the fellowship or cause division. It, it's really a sad thing. But you have to ask a lot of questions about this old prophet who hears from God maybe one last time in his life. And... Why is he an old prophet? Why is he referred to as somebody that really is probably not doing it anymore? Did he retire? 
You know, as men and women of God, do we retire? Do we ever stop trying to hear from the Lord and, 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 and act upon that? You know, does a pastor stop preaching because maybe his eyes are failing or he gets aged? I mean, when he's in his social life, is he still telling people about Jesus with his last breath? Retirement's a funny word for a person of God. Here's another question. What was he doing in Bethel if he wasn't condemning it? Bethel should have been condemned. What was this old prophet doing there? Maybe like many today, he started out good, but became comfortable in that carnal climate. Sort of like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? And he just kept making his way closer and closer, and then he became part of it. And there was a little bit left that God had to pull him out of there because he was almost a goner. But again, did he... Did he find Bethel? Hey, this place isn't so bad. These people are, you know, they're not judgmental. Don't judge. You know, they're, they're pretty cool, whatever you do. And hey, let's just kind of hang out here. Did he think nothing of lying to the young prophet? And, and again, I don't know his mindset, but maybe he was, <laughs> as somebody who used to do good, maybe he was desperate to see a man of God and to actually commune with him. Maybe his lie to him was a little lie, because I mean, he was trying to live the glory days of when God actually did use him. I'm just throwing a lot of conjecture in here. I don't know what the answer is. Did he know the consequences of his little lie? Because it does seem that he regretted his lie later on. It actually changes his life. And why would God speak to the old prophet? Well, we know that God spoke through Pharaoh Nicho and told Josiah, don't go up to battle against the Egyptians. God spoke uh, really through Samuel, through when the, it's, that's a weird situation itself and we covered this where the witch conjures up and she's surprised she sees Samuel and he rebukes Saul and the witch rebukes Saul. Very strange situation. God spoke to Cain. Cain, you know, paraphrasing. Sin lies at the door. It's looking to take you out. But you've you got to master it. And what happens not long afterwards? Cain kills Abel, kills his brother. Sad, isn't it? God is a merciful God. See, when you read the Bible on face value and you don't take it for context, you can come up with all kinds of wild conclusions. But when you take the Bible, as I just did, Old Testament, New Testament, go all the way around from Genesis to Revelation, there's a central theme. There's mercy. But it does appear that the old prophet through this starts to desire the right life. Okay? And again, the young prophet did, and again, I don't know this, so I love to say this is Pastor Joe's conjecture, but the young prophet, did he, maybe he, he did those miracles and he was so lifted up with pride that it, the word maybe wasn't so important to him anymore. Maybe he could bend it a little bit because look, hey, he just, he had um, Jeroboam hand withering and he, he speaks and the altar splits open. Don't know. Don't know. I often say two things in ministry and they often sound contradictory. Number one, join us. Okay, now that I've said that, I've often said, and I'll say it again, it can be extremely difficult at times. They seem like they're almost at odds with each other, those two points. More should join and, and use their spiritual gifts and, and desire the higher calling that God has called them to. But at the same time, when they do that, they'll have to sacrifice, they'll lose some of their freedoms, they'll be rebuked, they'll have somebody, um, you know, maybe being accountable in their life, and maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable. There's a high bar for obedience and submission to God. It can also be difficult to deal with expectations in ministry. 
by ministry overseers, by the body, right? You put yourself now into the spotlight, so to speak, because what we do is we say we're going to be servants because that was the way Jesus led, not by force, but by serving, washing feet, doing the things that was only, you know, for slaves or servants. Now, some make the parallel to this as, you know, Satan is a roaring lion, and actually, I got to get to that point, but uh, and actually, no, I didn't read it yet. I skipped right over it. Look at that. Verse 23. You're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> so let me read the rest of it. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, then he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. Very odd situation. So when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. So the animals are just kind of chilling, and the guy is dead. The lion killed him. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son saying, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion, they're just standing there by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was, after he had buried him, what he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. I mean, he's got this now affinity towards him, this, you know, this honor and respect towards, he wouldn't leave him in the street, and he buried him in his own tomb, and he told his kids, When I die, I want to be buried next to him. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines, on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. Again, there's, you know, why, why is this? There's, there's a high bar. You know, God calls us to obedience. And if we're in ministry, James 3.1, especially if we're teachers or have authority, we're held to a higher standard. That can be rough. But you know what? The only way to do it is by asking the Lord to fill us with the Spirit because there really is no human way that we can do it. It has to be an exercise of the Spirit, period. So the, after lying to the young prophet and getting him killed, the old prophet, is he's broken up about it, he honors the dead prophet and carries on the message where the young prophet left off. All I can say is people are strange. You know, but uh, so this is what happens. I mean, maybe this is repentance. Maybe, I mean, I've seen this where carnal believers are going in their carnality and they experience such a tragedy by their own hands, by their own making, that they turn their lives around and get serious about walking with God. Old Testament, New Testament, you see this. You know, he was, this man, this old prophet was unfulfilled. And when he heard that there was a, this great prophet who challenged the king, he had to see him. And he even lies. He bends the truth, horrible thing, just to get this guy to come to his house and fellowship with him. He did a lot of bad things, but it does seem, and I don't want to read too much into to it, that he, he starts to turn his life around and he, he preaches that message. And who knows, maybe he preached it through the city and he said, when I die, I want to be buried next to that guy. Verse 33. 
After this event, Jeroboam, the king, did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. So, you know, worse consequences um, in the next chapter. He doesn't learn from this. But basically, he doesn't change his ways. Um, this, is, this is a man that God gave him this. Imagine that. You're, you're a servant in Solomon's house, and the next thing you know, some years later, God says, you're going to be the king. But he doesn't honor God. He messes up royally, no pun intended. Come on, it's late, I know. <laughs> but again, he will pay a heavy price uh, in the next chapter. So what happens is the monarchy and the people continue in declension, spiritual declension. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come and conquer the northern kingdom. Now we're in the book of Daniel on Sunday, which is interesting because the Assyrian invasion precedes the Babylonian invasion of 605 all the way to 586 B.C. So it's amazing how you can take these different books of the Bible and plot them on a timeline. I, I find it fascinating. Um, God wasn't going to allow this to go on forever. Well, listen, starting good and ending bad. The title of tonight's message is Finishing Well. The young prophet started awesome, but he was supposed to separate himself from carnal believers. He was supposed to trust God and not compromise, but little by little, he ended up dead because he was disobedient. God expected more from him. Now, again, if you want to ask me my opinion, I think that when he died, the Lord accepted him. You know, Moses couldn't go into the promised land, but Moses was a great saint. Moses was a, a hero of faith. A lot of these people did things on the earth that were wrong and God limited them on the earth, but it doesn't mean that when they died, they didn't go to be, you know, of course, Jesus had to die for their sins. Um, but my opinion is it was a grave mistake. He was disobedient, but, you know, I don't think that changed his salvation. But I could be wrong. Second thing is we see King uh, Jeroboam starts out good as well. And God gave him so much, but because of his paranoia, if you remember the last chapter, King Jeroboam was paranoid about the southern kingdom. Instead of trusting God, he became an idolatrous fool for a king and, and put his, his country on that path of spiritual declension. His sin started when? When he stopped trusting God and he started looking to the circumstances and people. A lot of good lessons here. Here's an interesting note. The old prophet started out good because he was called a prophet, Right? See, at some point, he must have been good. Comes, falls into, maybe loses his fire, falls into carnality. Not so good and bad in the, in the middle. And then it appears that he turns it around for good, carrying the young prophet's message. So I guess in the Bible, you can say that there's hope for anyone. Firmly believe that. I mean, we know, I don't, I don't have to mention names, but if you've been around long enough, you know many famous people in ministry right? In, in ministries, Christian ministries, big ministries, the church, whatever. They start out good, but end poorly. Then the question is, what about us? It's a perfect message, the parallel with, with uh, Daniel chapter 5 that we just covered, mini, mini, tekel, yefarsin, right? <laughs> if, if, if we're weighed by God and he puts us on that divine balance scale to see what we're worth as far as in a spiritual sense, how will we come up? We know Belshazzar and Babylon came up negative. They came up wanting, and God had to judge them. 
And I'm sure we've seen many examples of those that started out even with a bang in ministry and fizzle out at the end. However, I think the most important thing that we can look at this person and and we could Google a bunch of names, but the bottom line is what's really important when we go home is the person that we look at in the mirror. Where are we now? Well, if we're here on a Wednesday night, that's pretty awesome. It's a good start. These are the faithful soldiers, you know, a lot less than on a Sunday. But the key is that we continue in our relationship with the Lord, that we continue to seek the Lord's face, that we continue in His Word, that we continue to ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit so that the Lord can help us to end well. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfield's by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.